75,000 miles in 29 years, which is equal to three times around the world at the equator, to what are now 44 different countries. From his home in Morocco, he held jobs in India and the Maldive Islands and was an ambassador to China. But if his travels were great, it's because the Muslim world at the time had such reach that he could travel through it. We're talking about the greatest traveler of the medieval period, Ibn Battuta, and he is our subject on the golden age of Islam today, so stay with us. favorite character of the Golden Age, and this is a man named Ibn Battuta, who is famous for the number of miles he's traveled and the number of countries he went to. And it's always pointed out every time his name comes up that this was three times as far as Marco Polo had traveled. But this is not really what makes him interesting. The interesting thing is that Ibn Battuta was definitely a man of his times. He couldn't have done what he did a century earlier, or even a few decades later. So when we look at a guy like this, we get to really see what was possible in the world he lived, and what people at that time were interested in. And thankfully, he recorded his travels for us, which give us a picture of what the Muslim world was like at the time. You know, we spend our time looking at wars, at conquests, at empires growing and shrinking, but there's very little written and very little we study about what was actual life like in these places. And Ibn Battuta is one of the best sources for that. And we look at his life, we also find that there are a lot of ups and downs in history, and things could change a lot from year to year. So Ibn Battuta actually lived in a period between two catastrophic events, which is usually lost in history. I mean, we talk about the high points, or the low points, if you will, when things were really happening. But there were far more periods like the one in which Ibn Battuta lived in, when things had settled down, when countries were generally at peace, when they were trading with each other, when you could go from one to another, when you could go work in another empire, with relative safety. These are the kind of things we don't look at, but which are so important. So the record of his travels, which became one of the most famous books in classical Arabic, really gives us a picture of what Muslim civilization was like. And it has been studied by a number of people and a lot of commentaries written on it. And if I could just say for a minute, I wrote one book on him that is also uh, out there, so I have an interest in this. But it's kind of like a panorama that shows us the incredible reach of Islamic and Arabic civilization even after the famous time of the conquest were over. So today we're going to look at the uh, amazing Ibn Battuta, not just for what he did, but really um, for the world in which he traveled. And he's one of these great figures. Now we notice a lot of people, if you're not familiar with Arabic, a lot of the great characters of Arabic are named Ibn, 
and that's because the word Ibn means son or son of. So Ibn Battuta means the son of Battuta. Uh, we've talked about Ibn Sina. We'll talk about Ibn Khaldun in a little while. Now, that might sound very informative, but the fact is Ibn Battuta's father was not named Battuta. It's one of these things that becomes a pretty standardized name. Just like today, there are people who have that name, Ibn something or Abu something, and they're not actually the son of or the father of someone with that name. So it just becomes a name. But this is what it means, and that's why you see so many people have the same name. But anyway, this man, who is rightfully known as the greatest traveler of the Middle Ages, didn't start out to be a traveler. And he really wasn't an explorer per se. Uh, I mean, he was actually out looking for a job. Now, definitely, as he notes, he liked to travel and he was very interested in exotic lands. But most of his traveling was for business, for career purposes. So, not to be facetious here, but the reality is he traveled 75,000 miles around the world basically because he could. And you could at that time. And you wouldn't be able to for much longer. So anyway, the story starts in the year 1304 in the city of Tangier, which is in the north of Morocco and it's right across from Spain. And that's also like the western corner of the Muslim world, if we look at where it stretches from. And so uh, Ibn Battuta will be known as the guy who traveled to China. But the reality is he actually spent a very brief time there. Uh, he spent much more time in the places in between. And that was primarily all on business. So, of course, we have to set the scene for you a little bit. We've said that he's a man of his times. So what were the times? And, you know, what is this period that generally gets overlooked when we look at the, the big bloody catastrophes on either side? Well, the Muslim conquests ended a long time ago. Uh, and the expansion of the Great Caliphate was long over, as you know. Um, even the Crusades have died out. But by this time, uh, the Muslim world is really losing territory, at least politically. Um, they're, they're losing territory in Europe. What was once Mo Muslim Spain is being uh, conquered by the Spanish bit by bit. And pretty soon there will not be much left of it except the south. Uh, and they lost, of course, tremendous territory to the Mongols in the east. And so even the largest Muslim states at this time, and their great caliphate had shattered into a number of smaller states, even the largest of these uh, were, were not that large by today's standards. I mean, they controlled um, the largest, controlling about three-quarters of India, which is a substantial amount of territory, but it is certainly nothing like the Umayyad dynasty at its height. But while the political, military power has definitely waned, Islam as a culture and as a civilization is continuing to spread, and that is mostly through trade. Places that now have the largest Muslim populations in the world, places like Indonesia, were reached through trade. They were never ruled by the Caliphate. And once hostile states, like the numerous Mongol states that were sent up after the devastating conquest, have actually been converted to Islam 
and now are more or less allies, or at least trading partners, with the other Muslim states. Now, we discussed some of those in previous episodes, but it's a very different picture than what we had in the previous century. In the 1200s, we had the Mongols absolutely devastating the Muslim world. We had crusades still going on in Palestine. Uh, It was a very rough time, and now that has all settled down. Well, it will settle down for a while. And so for uh, Ibn Battuta, who's born in the early 1300s, it's sort of another one of these mini golden ages. It's not going to last long, as we'll see, and things will be back to uh, rough times again. But for a little while, it's it's a great success. Now, as we said, the centralized caliphate is fallen, and it will never rise again. Now, some historians out there are going to try and make the claim that the later Ottoman Empire is the revival of the caliphate, but it's never anywhere near as big as the Umayyad or the Abbasid Empire was. It's a Turkish Empire, um, and so really it is not on the same sense or the same scale as what the great caliphate was. But in the place of that one central caliphate, numerous smaller states have risen, and there are far too many for us to mention them here. But we've talked about some of these. Uh, We've talked about the Mamluks in Egypt, which uh, are probably the best known of these. But there is the Marinid dynasty in Morocco. There's the Hafsid dynasty in Tunisia. Uh, There is the Sultanate of Delhi in India, when most of India at this time is Muslim. And the Ottomans are beginning to take control of Turkey from the Seljuks and so on. And significantly, the Mongols have gone from being a threat to being neighboring Muslim states. We might call them allies in a sense. Uh, But the Mongol Empire has been broken into four khanates, each one being ruled obviously by a, a khan. Uh, And these have become allies. At the same time, though, Muslim trading communities are springing up all down the east coast of Africa, all around the Indian Ocean, and they're going to spread into Southeast Asia, which is where the largest uh, Muslim populations are today. This is the world into which Ibn Battuta is born. So the idea that a kid from northern Morocco could get a job in India it's testament to the Muslim world at that time. So, as far as the comparison goes, you know, Marco Polo was a Venetian who visited China, which is certainly interesting, uh, but Ibn Battuta was a Muslim traveling the length and breadth of his Muslim world. Now, if Marco Polo had gone to China because it was part of Venice, then that would really be uh, an apt comparison here. So, it's really a very different situation. As we said, Ibn Battuta did not start out with the intention of being an explorer. He was trained as a Muslim jurist, or a qadi, of the Maliki school, which was, of course, you know, one of the most prestigious occupations of the time. 
But it was a tough business in Morocco, as it was a well-established Muslim state with a lot of trained jurists at that time. And so it was tough to get a foothold. So at 21 years of age, Ibn Battuta left his hometown to get a job. Now, there was a great demand for judges in all the new areas into which Islam was spreading. So it was a great time to pursue a career abroad. And basically, that's how this man ended up traveling 75,000 miles. Now, it sounds like a long way to go uh, to get a job, but he was quite fond of taking detours on the way. So his first journey at the age of 21 was to go on the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is something every Muslim is supposed to do. Uh, and given the relative peace and stability at the time and the fairly good relations between states, uh, it was possible to go all the way from Morocco into Saudi Arabia. Now, despite that, the Hajj journey was still a very difficult and dangerous trip at the time. Uh, due, of course, to the natural hazards. I mean, you're going through desert for much of this time. Uh, there are bandits out there, uh, even if there's not warfare. Um, so it's very difficult. So the uh, pilgrims used to travel in large caravans. Basically, each state, each Muslim empire, would send a caravan, and the leader of that state was responsible for the welfare of that. So a lot of prestige went on this. So, of course, that caravan would have a lot of guards and a lot of provisions. And they would also have a leader who was called an emir, which is the same word for a prince, and they took a judge with them who was, again, basically the senior religious figure. Remember, in Islam, we don't have priests, uh, so to speak. So basically, the qadi is like your equivalent, something s similar to like a pastor for this traveling group. Well, that's how Ibn Battuta gets his first job, as the qadi for a hajj caravan going to Mecca. Now, that journey alone would take about 3,000 miles. And, of course, it's all on the backs of camels, on animals. There's no flying. And he really didn't take a boat until uh, he tried to at the very end, but most of the time you had to go over land. Well, the first place Ibn Battuta stops off for, for any significant period of time, was Egypt. And he was quite impressed with the Mamluk Sultanate, which was probably the most powerful Muslim state of the time, uh, Cairo would be the largest city uh, in the world uh, right about this time as well. And so this was really the center of the Muslim world. I remember the devastation that hit Baghdad, uh, that hit Iraq, uh, would never really ever be uh, fully recovered from. So he lavishes great praise on the Sultan of uh, Egypt at the time, who was Anasar Muhammad, who was actually one of the strongest and most uh, prolific builders as a Mamluk Sultan. They had a lot of turnover, a lot of coups, a lot of rebellions, but he was probably one of the strongest, so it was a good time to be going to Egypt. He then went on to Damascus and Jerusalem, which were in decline. In fact, Jerusalem sounds like a, a backwater when Ibn Battuta gets there. But he ends up joining up with the Mamluk caravan, which is heading from Syria, because uh, Syria and Palestine are controlled by the Mamluks at this time, going to Mecca. 
And so uh, the Mamluk Sultan, who was the ruler of this area, uh, he had the honor of keeping the caravans safe from attack. However, the natural environment was probably the biggest killer out there. Uh, and so Ibn Battuta recalls a saying he heard about the stretch of desert going from Syria uh, down to Mecca, and that is Men Yedchol Yamut, which means whoever enters dies. Well, it turns out he didn't die, uh, but he does relate getting so sick that he had to be tied to his saddle in order to not fall off the camel. Now, this is quite a contrast from today, uh, when two million people every year make the pilgrimage to Mecca via a special airport. Uh, but you still had thousands of Muslims making this journey from all over the Muslim world. And they're doing it under very harsh conditions. And it often takes up to a year. So this is like a big lifetime event. Now, for Ibn Battuta, who really gets bitten with the travel bug, it takes him even longer. He's in no hurry to go back home. In fact, it would be well over 20 years before he actually does. So uh, one of the stories he relates this time, and there are many, is about Mansa Musa, who was the Sultan of Mali, which is in current-day Mauritania and Mali today. Uh, and this state was quite rich because it supplied much of the world's gold at the time. And the Sultan of Mali had so much gold and traded so much gold uh, that it's said that his riches are basically impossible to estimate. Because gold is being used for currency in other places. Uh, I mean, and he's basically using it uh, the way you would use tin or aluminum around here. Uh, so in any case, uh, he traveled up from West Africa up across through North Africa, through Egypt, and onto Mecca from the pilgrimage. But he made such an impression due to the huge amount of gold that he, that he wore and that he gave away that people were still talking about him in Egypt when Ibn Battuta got there years later. Uh, so anyway, Ibn Battuta does make it all the way down to Mecca. And he does his pilgrimage. But at this time, Mecca was a great center of Islamic teaching. And that's what Ibn Battuta was interested in. Remember, he is basically a Qadi. So he joined a teaching circle at the Great Mosque of Mecca, which people could do at the time. And this is exactly what it sounds like when they call it a circle. I mean, it's literally circles, concentric circles of students around a, a teacher who would generally sit up against a pillar, you know, for back support. And you would have this circle of students around him. And basically, anyone could join in on this circle. Uh, this is, by the way, why the Arabic word for class today is suf, which is the same word for a row, because it referred to these concentric circles of students, each one being like a row. And so you would call upon a, a row or a suf to stand up and recite. And it wasn't a very formalized uh, Situation. I mean, you could sit there and you could listen, you could learn from this teacher, uh, but the thing would happen after you'd been there a while, if you had impressed him significantly enough with your learning, uh, then he would give you a shahada, which today means a degree, uh, but it actually means a, a testimony. Basically, he'd write a letter saying, yeah, you, this person has studied with me enough, and I say that he is 
qualified to go out and teach, and that was a big thing. So it's very different than enrolling in a university. But in any case, Ibn Battuta didn't seem to have any specific plans. He came out with the Morocco caravan, but he wasn't going back with it. Instead, he joins another caravan, which is leaving from Mecca, going up to Iraq and Persia. Because remember, these caravans are coming from all over the Muslim world, and they're going back out all over the Muslim world. So he said, hey, why not hitch a ride with these folks? Uh, and so he does. He goes to Iraq, and there he writes about the state of Baghdad at the time, which was still in ruins from the Mongol attack, which was 60 years earlier. They were still very devastated. Um, and he got very sick there, and he couldn't continue with his caravan. Uh, so he eventually got better and joined another Hajj caravan going back to Mecca, and he stayed there for three years studying. And, I mean, this sounds like a great life as a vagabond. You can go from place to place and study and join with this group and um, join with this caravan. Uh, but uh, Ibn Battuta, was, he, he was a very ambitious guy, and he was also very opportunistic. He could find an opportunity to use his services as a Qadi um, to basically to uh, earn a living. And what we see early and on in his career, which is going to become very, very apparent later on, he seems to be a really persuasive guy. He's very good at ingratiating himself uh, with anyone who's in power. So he ends up as the honored guest of pretty much anybody he runs into. So it worked out well for him. But he was also still a fairly low-level Islamic jurist, and he loved to travel. So while he was in Mecca, which of course is like the great meeting place for Muslims, I mean, the, the name has come to mean that, um, but if this is a place where you get wind of a lot of job opportunities. Uh, like today, if you go to a big conference or convention, you see all these ads posted up on the wall, people interviewing for jobs. Well, this is kind of what's going on in Mecca. And the uh, Muslim world is expanding uh, greatly, not in Europe, they're being driven out of Europe, uh, but it's spreading to the east, not as an empire, but as a religion, uh, primarily via trade. And so a lot of these places were recent converts and they needed help setting up their legal systems, setting up their mosques and their education systems. So while his hometown back in Morocco uh, may actually have plenty of Muslim jurists in there and competition for a job is pretty tough, uh, if you're willing to go out to India, for example, uh, go out to the Mongol Empire, there is plenty of great jobs. And so he's eager to do that. However... Uh, getting out to India was not easy. Uh, the way to go usually was by sea, across the Indian Ocean. Uh, but the monsoon winds, of course, are seasonal, meaning you could only travel eastward safely at certain times, and at other times you couldn't travel safely at all. So, in any case, Ibn Battuta ends up boarding a boat in Jeddah, which is in um, modern-day Saudi Arabia, and it's along the Red Sea. And he makes his way as far as Yemen, which at this time is also another thriving independent Muslim kingdom, and he stays there for several months. And he visits the major cities of Yemen. Uh, in his memoirs, he leaps um, 
lavish praise on the generosity and wisdom of the Yemeni sultan, who he claims would sit in public uh, once a week, and any citizen could bring their problems to him. Now, part of the issue with anything about Ibn Battuta is that we're not sure exactly how much of it he actually did and how many of the places he talks about he actually went to. Uh, for example, he describes all the major cities in Yemen, but historians really doubt that he actually saw some of them. His description of the pyramids in Egypt, for example, um, and the Great Wall of China are both suspect. It doesn't sound like he actually went to those places. Now, this might make him sound like a fraud. You see, he's talking about going to places that he actually didn't. But in those days, it was a little bit different. Uh, because it's very common to report things that someone heard. And he's basically doing a, like a travel log. He's telling about these exotic places for people who haven't been there and probably aren't ever going to go there. And so he relates all kinds of stories. In many of the stories in his book, he clearly identifies as things he heard. You know, I heard about this, I heard about that. And he makes it very clear that it's secondhand. A lot of others we're not sure of. So when he's describing some of these cities, um, whether he actually went there or not, or he's just passing on the reports he heard secondhand, uh, it, it's really not that significant, honestly. Um, he's telling basically what he knew about the places. Now another interesting aside in this journey down the Red Sea to Yemen is he describes being terrified because it's the first time he was ever in a boat. And this is very funny considering the great travels that he's going to go have in the future. I mean, he's actually going to get shipwrecked going to China. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to hear him talking about being uh, afraid of traveling that way. In any case, Ibn Battuta is going to get used to the sea very soon. So from Yemen, uh, he wants to go eastward to India. But because of the weather, he couldn't. So he gets on a boat and he ends up traveling south instead. And he goes down the coast of Africa as far as modern-day Kenya. But the place that really impressed him the most was the city of Mogadishu, which of course is in modern-day Somalia. Now, this is um, really ironic because today the name Mogadishu in Somalia is synonymous with destruction and civil war and tragedy. But in the 1300s, Mogadishu was a booming trade port that dominated the eastern coast of Africa. I mean, if you look at where it is, it's right on the actual Horn of Africa. So it's in a, it's in a great location for trade going up the Red Sea, down the coast of Africa, and eastward out to India. And it was a, a really impressive trade port. In fact, their system was so elaborate that whenever a foreign ship came into port, the authorities would send out an escort in a boat, and that person would become like the sponsor, or really the minder, of the merchant while they were in town. And so apparently Ibn Battuta was well-known, or at least well-connected, uh, through his travels so far uh, that he got a minder, even though he wasn't a merchant, and he was brought directly to the sultan, and he was given these lavish gifts, uh, which he describes in great detail. And this happens every place he goes. I mean, he, he's just showered with all kinds of extremely rich gifts. 
which is a testament to his importance, but it's also a testament to the economy at the time, how much money is uh, floating around. Well, he describes the Sultan, who of course is, is not an Arab, uh, he describes him as an eloquent man who spoke both his local tongue and Arabic and had an extensive education in Arabic. And this touches on part of the reason for the success of Islamic civilization even after the military empire ended. You know, there's a lot of empires we've seen in history after their military conquest are over, when they're not controlling territory, they fall apart. Like, you know, what has become of the Hunnish Empire and even the Mongol Empire really disappeared and is absorbed into Islam. But Islam, uh, of course, was associated with the Arabic language. And remember the Umayyads who were the ones with the, the policy of making Arabic the official language everywhere. And this is significant because with all this trade going on, uh, having a language that everyone can speak, even if it's their second language, is very important. Uh, just like you can travel around much of the world using English. You can go all over Europe using English. Uh, and uh, what is funny, if you watch any foreign television show, and of course there are tons of them on Netflix, um, when people from two different European countries get together, they start speaking in English. So you can watch a, a Norwegian show, which is completely in Norwegian, uh, but when they meet the Russians, they talk in English, even though it's not the native language of any of them. Well, Arabic is doing the same thing. So the idea is, even though we're down here in Somalia, where they speak a different language, they're speaking Somali, uh, which is not even related, uh, the fact is they all have to know Arabic because of their religion, ostensibly, that's the, the main reason, but also learning it helps you have a language you can speak to all the traders, all the merchants who come there, any ambassadors that come here, any politicians from other places in the Muslim world. And so this helps preserve the Arabic Islamic civilization even after it has no more military power, and I mean the same thing is true even today. Also, Islam was also very beneficial for trade because it had a unified legal code. And we've talked about the importance of Islamic law in society. Uh, Islamic law dealt with every aspect of society. That included trade, that included the economy, things like weights and measures, all of that. Now, other civilizations may have had great legal systems as well. But the advantage here, if we're talking about international trade is that everybody has the same legal system, more or less. Of course, as we've seen, there's a lot of, a lot of differences uh, in Islamic law. But if you're a merchant who's bringing goods from, say, Indonesia or India, uh, and they're eventually going to go off to Morocco or southern Spain, the idea that there's one legal system uh, defending your rights or regulating your procedures all the way along the route is very, very important. Uh, you know the problems if you show up somewhere and they have a completely different system and you have no rights there. Uh, that's a very perilous. So all these things are showing the factors that the things that the centralized caliphate did when it had the chance, which were all done for the purposes of religion, actually helped for building a civilization, for building a culture and spreading it, which continues to this day. Okay, so in any case, 
like uh, Ibn Battuta, the Sultan of Mogadishu, speaks Arabic, and that's what they converse in. This is why he can get a job in India. This is why he can get a job in the Maldive Islands, where Arabic definitely is not the main language. Batuta is forced to go back to Arabia and he really had no no intention of staying on in Somalia permanently he was just visiting there well he lands back in Arabia and he makes now his third pilgrimage which again is not unusual if you have the opportunity to do this of course it's a great religious thing to do but we've talked about the educational uh, opportunities it brings uh, the opportunities to talk to other jurists from all over the world, and the job opportunities. Well, while he is in Mecca, at some point he heard about career opportunities working for the Sultan of Delhi in India. Now that is a kingdom we have not mentioned much up to this point, but it is one that was growing and becoming one of the world's great powers. Uh, this was after the Muslim conquest of most of India, not all of India, uh, but the Muslim Sultan of Delhi controlled about three-quarters of what is now modern-day India. Now this sounds a bit strange to us because we think of Delhi as being the, the heart of Hindu India, and today there's quite a bit of persecution going on against Muslims there, uh, especially in recent years. Uh, but at the time, it was under the control of a uh, series of Muslim kingdoms. The most powerful and famous will become the Mughals. Uh, but this shifting balance of power is the reason for the religious division and conflict in India. But in any case, in the 1300s, it's definitely Islam that is in control. And so the dynasty of the, the Muslim sultan had its origins in the breakup of the, the Caliphate and the Mongol and Turkic invasions. And particularly the use of Mamluk soldiers in the area. And there's some confusion here because, of course, whenever we talk about Mamluks, we're usually talking about Egypt. But Mamluks were being used all over the Muslim world. The idea of buying these Turkic slaves to become warriors who, you know, the idea that they would be completely loyal to you because you'd buy them and not let them, not let their kids inherit their position. And, of course, like everywhere else, if you farm out your military to somebody else, they are eventually going to take power. And that's what happens in India. So the first Muslim kingdom in India was the Mamluk kingdom. Not to be confused with the Mamluk kingdom of Egypt, except that they both come about the same way, but they're different kingdoms. They had taken over about a hundred years before Ibn Battuta's time. 
Now, when he's getting there, the Muslim Sultan of Delhi was Muhammad uh, Tughlaq, who was known for his ambition, his cruelty, and his strict imposition of Islamic law. He was also, however, the richest man in the Muslim world, probably the richest man in the world uh, completely. Of course, India was and will remain for centuries a huge, vastly important uh, trade uh, place in the trade routes. And so he has a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and of course, if you've got a lot of money, you can get away with a lot of strange activities. Uh, and so this is why it's um, generally felt that this guy, by pretty much anybody's standards, was fairly crazy. Uh, and he's known for his really cruel treatment of people, uh, his paranoia, his suspicion of relatives, um, and he, he's very mercurial. Uh, you can be on his good side one day and on his bad side the next. And that happens to a lot of people, and a lot of people don't live to get back on the good side. But like I say, when you've got the money and the power he's got, then, I mean, uh, people will deal with you. It's generally believed that he killed his father to get the job, um, and which sort of sits with his uh, personality. Uh, and Ibn Battuta will end up being on both ends of that. There will be times when he is just the darling, one of the closest advisors of the Sultan, and times when he is in prison fully expecting to be killed. But as we're seeing about Ibn Battuta, this guy's got incredible luck. I tend to think also he's uh, incredibly good at talking his way out of things. Uh, so there's a reason he lives to travel 75,000 miles. Now, it might seem pretty straightforward to us, but exactly how Ibn Battuta goes from Mecca to India is not the least bit intuitive. Now, of course, you couldn't just hop on a plane to Delhi. But still, if you were to look at a map and you know that there are Hajj caravans going back and forth... Uh, every year, I mean, you could still get there fairly directly. Uh, as for Ibn Battuta, however, he really seemed to embody the idea of enjoying the journey. Or to put it another way, he would be that relative who wants to stop at every roadside attraction between your home and Disney World. You know, so you get to see the largest ball of twine in the northern hemisphere. Well, this is the guy. Okay, so in this case, he's not going with sea travel like he did the last time. He seems to have had uh, a bit of an aversion to that. So he starts out on the land route to India, although what it's going to end up being doesn't sound anything like a land route to India. Uh, and we're, we're not going to take the time here to go over all the stops. There are quite a few of them, uh, most of them going in the wrong direction. But he ends up traveling back to Cairo, he ends up taking a Genoese ship to Turkey. Now, again, this is interesting. It shows how much the world has changed uh, since that time. Uh, he's taking passage with Italian merchants, uh, and he's got a fairly decent-sized entourage going with him, but it shows this has become something that was um, really fairly, uh, fairly normal. This sort of trade was going on. So, yeah, these people had been trying to kill each other for a while, they would be later on, but most of the time they're doing business like normal people do. Eventually, he's going to join up with the Khan of the Golden Horde, 
which as we've discussed before, was the Mongol, now Muslim, kingdom uh, that occupied much of Russia. Now, as you say, trying to trace a line from Mecca to Delhi in India and how you end up in Russia, well, it's, it's a bit of a detour. Okay, so anyway, 70 years after the Mongols had ravaged the Muslim world, they're now one of the key parts of it. Uh, and so much so that when Ibn Battuta returns to Morocco eventually, and by this time he's quite famous and honored, he presents the report of his travels to the Sultan of Morocco, who of course he calls the greatest man in the world. Uh, he lists the Mongol Khan as one of the other great leaders of the Muslim world. <clears throat> so the idea being, you know, this is one of your peers, so to speak. So things have certainly... Uh, changed a lot. And this is kind of like the way today, you know, states like France, Germany, and Spain, which of course have a long history of wars between them, are part of the European Union. And uh, at least at this time, you can travel from one to the other without even showing your passport anywhere. And this also explains why a guy from Morocco is going to end up being invited to the highest circles of power wherever he goes, even though he technically has no official position for much of that time. But this is because he has an impressive record of travels, but he's also coming from another Muslim state, which is more or less considered to be a friend. Now, just to give you some idea of his ambition, at one point while he's there, Ibn Battuta is actually making plans to travel to Siberia by dog sled. Now that trip ends up getting canceled, kind of unfortunate, because that would have really been a, a great, uh, you know, cherry on top of all his travels. But um, it's pretty clear he's got some serious ambitions. I mean, you're going from Saudi Arabia to India, and you're going to take a dog sled trip in Siberia. Um, you're kind of getting way off the track. Well, even this is not it, however. Uh, he ends up uh, becoming a friend of the Mongol Khan, and he becomes good friends of one of the wives of the Mongol Khan, who also happens to be a Byzantine princess. Again, it shows how much things have changed. A Mongol leader who is a Muslim married to uh, a, a princess from the heart of Christianity uh, and she decides she wants to go back and give birth. She's pregnant at this time. She wants to give birth with her family in Constantinople. I mean, because relations are, are good between them. And so this uh, Mongol Khan entrusts Ibn Battuta to accompany her, again, a Muslim from Morocco, to accompany her on the journey to Constantinople, heart of the Christian world. Now, there are a whole lot of observations you could make just from that one little encounter there. Uh, but it's clear that we're, we're talking about a different time than we would have been talking about 60 years earlier, and that we're going to be talking about a few years um, to the future. And this is the sort of thing that, that makes Ibn Battuta and the people like him, the other travelers who write, so important. Because he's writing about normal life when there's not a big war going on, and there's very little of that out there. Now, of course, I don't need to even tell you that once he gets to Constantinople, 
Ibn Battuta is going to be the star of the social scene. He's going to meet everybody of importance there. Uh, he will even visit the world's greatest Christian church, the Hagia Sophia, although he makes uh, a point to mention that he didn't actually go inside to the Christian part of it. Uh, but of course, he's, you know, he's a big star in Constantinople. Now, remember, he's trying to get to India. I mean, it doesn't sound like he's trying very hard, but that's his ultimate goal because he's got a job waiting for him in India. Now, the surprising thing probably at this point is he actually does go from Constantinople to India, although he had gotten a lot closer to it at many other points on the journey. And there he actually does go to work uh, for Sultan uh, Muhammad Togluk, and he spends the longest phase of his career six years there working for the Sultan. And of course, I don't think I have to tell you that he's going to end up becoming the chief Qadi of Delhi and one of the chief advisors to the Sultan. So even though we remember this guy as a traveler, he's really a judge out looking for a, a job as a judge. And he actually does find one here and a couple of other places and work there. In fact, he might well have stayed there permanently if he could have. But like I said, uh, Sultan Muhammad was a fairly crazy guy. And so Ibn Battuta found himself in trouble with the Sultan uh, at many points. And it was, again, because someone would spread a rumor that this guy is plotting against you. Uh, the Sultan would listen to one person, he'd listen to another person, and depending on who he was listening to, you could be thrown in jail. Um, and at one point, he's pretty sure he's going to die, uh, that he's going to be executed. He ends up not being, um, but he also realizes from that experience that, you know, probably this is not the most secure job uh, with the longest life expectancy in the world. And he is not averse to using travel to get him out of a situation. Now, while he's there, though, he describes some scenes that to us seem like they come out of uh, the Arabian Nights or something, but they seem to be true. He said the Sultan is incredibly rich, and so even though he's extremely cruel, he's also uh, crazy generous, which is one of the ways he stays in power. So he would have these huge parades, and he would ride in town on an elephant and on the elephant would be a catapult which shot gold pieces into the crowd. Now, uh, that sounds like something out of a cartoon, but the truth is often as strange as fiction, and in this case it is. Okay, well, Ibn Battuta has found himself in a fairly difficult position. He can see that it's probably smart to get out of India. And so he gets this opportunity uh, with the mission that he is most famous for, and that is being the envoy to China. Now, once again, the political situation here is very different than what we expect. Uh, the Sultan of Delhi had good relations with China, which was on his borders, uh, and he was actually negotiating the passage of Muslim pilgrims, from China, uh, and so he sent Ibn Battuta as his ambassador, no doubt because his reputation as a traveler preceded him, and his reputation as being very persuasive 
preceded him. And he sent him to China by sea with a huge, huge uh, amount of gifts. I mean, just a lavish display of gifts. Now, that's not exactly how he ends up in China. Uh, nothing ever goes the way planned, uh, but that's, that's the reason he gets commissioned. Actually, his fleet sinks in the South China Sea. Ibn Battuta manages to make it uh, out safely, but he is afraid to go back to India at this time, which is you know, probably a smart decision. So instead, he ends up taking a job as the chief Qadi in the Maldive Islands, which, if you know, are uh, very small islands off the coast of India, it lying at about uh, four meters above sea level. The Maldives are one of the countries today that is uh, feared will probably be underwater if global warming continues. Uh, but that's where he ends up. And we have this image of the Maldives as being this tropical island paradise, which they really are, but they have recently been converted to Islam. And so they want to get in an experienced Qadi who can help them establish the Islamic legal system. Uh, and they do. Now, as we said, Ibn Battuta is not a traveler. He is a jurist, and he's actually a fairly strict jurist, which is a little bit surprising because he also has uh, this love and respect for other cultures. So he goes to uh, places uh, like the Byzantine Empire, he goes to China, and he has great respect and admiration for these non-Muslim cultures. So that makes him sound to us like he's a very progressive, a sort of liberal kind of guy, and in that sense he is. Uh, but in terms of his imposition of Islamic law, he's known to be fairly strict. And so, but he has a lot of issues to deal with. Like I say, this is a tropical island nation that has only recently been converted to Islam, and so it's a big culture shock. For example, one of the issues he talks about is the fact that women went around topless, which was normal, they just didn't you know, cover that part of their body. But of course, this was scandalous for him, and he didn't have much success in changing this. The only thing he notes is that they would actually cover themselves up when they came to visit him. Uh, but he had some issues with men not going to the mosque, or being drunk instead, and so he would have them beaten and paraded through the market. So we can see he's actually a fairly strict guy. But in any case, he actually does make the journey to China later. Now, he's, he's not an ambassador at this point, but on the one hand, his curiosity was piqued. He wanted to go there. On the other hand, uh, his reputation is sort of on the line. Uh, and so, although he is famous as the guy who went to China, he would only actually spend a few months there compared to like the six years he spends in India. But nevertheless, this is the furthest point to the east that he reaches. And he's very positive about the wealth in China. Uh, he is very, very positive about the artistic and technological skill of the Chinese. He talks at one point about their silk industry, which of course was very uh, important and very interesting because the silk would end up traveling eventually to the Middle East and then on to Europe. So how they actually made it was very important uh, to him. And he talks about the, the art that they had. They said that they were a famous artist who could draw the likeness of anyone that looked exact, 
would end up looking exactly like them. And so at one point he visits a city in China. He goes back there and he sees a picture of himself and he says it looks just like him. Now, as you would imagine, of course, he is treated like royalty when he gets there. I mean, he is wined and dined and feasted us. So this is really giving us a different picture of what the Muslim world was like in the 1300s. Um, you know, we, we just talked about the destruction, the Mongols ruining the empire and destroying Baghdad, and now here he is gallivanting around China and being treated like a big shot. Well, you might wonder why we care about this. Why is this important? Because, you know, the big picture here is that Islam had peaked in its political power, the caliphate had collapsed, and everything was in decline, and enemies were crushing the Muslim world from all sides. Okay. But in terms of the culture, in terms of trade, in the influence of civilizations, that is growing. Okay, and this crushing that we see, when you look at it from the, you know, the 30,000 foot perspective from high in the sky, it looks like a constant process. But there's a lot of time in between when things are going along uh, very well. And so Ibn Battuta is certainly living the high life in China, half a world away from his hometown. He may have gone even further if he could have, but in the year 1346, the Black Plague strikes Asia. And this is, of course, the most destructive thing to ever hit humanity. I mean, it makes any war look like, um, you know, a, a minor issue compared to what the Black Plague actually does. And so the world is now about to enter into a new phase. If he was in something of a mini golden age, a period of harmony and great prosperity, that's about to change drastically. Well, it took him 21 years to get from Morocco to China, but the return trip is only going to take three, which is a relatively fast journey when you consider there's, you know, he doesn't really have a regular means of getting there. And this is because everywhere he goes, he ends up being just one step ahead of the plague or in some cases behind it. So he describes going back to places that he went earlier and now finding him devastated. When he arrives someplace to visit the friends he once had and the children he left behind, as he did, he had at least 10 wives that we know of and he fathered a great, great many children. No one's sure how many, but he finds most of them dead. Now, it's also a tribute to his immune system, I guess. He's traveled a lot, and so that may be the reason he doesn't end up getting the plague, but almost everybody he knows does. So it's, it's really a sad story. He goes back to, from one place to another. He goes to Damascus to look up the son and the wife he left there. They were there all dead and so forth. And eventually he makes it back to his hometown of Tangier where he finds out his family has died. And the conditions that allowed him to be a world traveler, to travel those 75,000 miles, they're basically gone at this point. We're going to enter a, a period of, of insulation and conflict. Well, that might be impressive, but Ibn Battuta is still not done. Uh, while he's in Morocco, he hears about the losses that the Muslims are suffering in Spain, uh, where, of course, the, uh, the Christian conquest is steadily driving them out. 
So he volunteers as a soldier and goes off to fight in Spain, where he gives us one of the best record of what conditions were like at that time. He talks about the various political intrigues going on, uh, and he talks about the Spanish army being struck down by plague. It, but he comes back, and his final journey will be down across the Sahara into the kingdoms of West Africa, where he encounters some uh, Muslim kingdoms that are very different from what he has seen before. Uh, he meets cannibals, he talks about their preferences for what parts of the body they like to eat, and so forth. And this really shows how much Islam has changed as it is spread over the borders of the Arab world. He finds Islam in many, many different forms. What happens to him after that, we really don't hear much. We know he dies in 1368, uh, having lived this great life. Now, Ibn Battuta by this time was quite famous, and he came to the attention of the Sultan of Morocco in Fez, who can commissioned him to write his travels, which became one of the most famous books um, in, in Arabic of all times. Now, of course, trivia experts love to point out the fact that Ibn Battuta didn't actually write the book, which is true. A writer was assigned to him named Ibn Juzay, but of course it's, it's Ibn Battuta who is basically dictating this, so it is the travels of Ibn Battuta. Now, in this uh, recollection, Ibn Battuta talks about seven great world empires. This is how he sees the world of his day. You may recognize some of them. There is the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, of course, the Sultan of Delhi, who we mentioned, uh, the four Mongol rulers of Russia, Central Asia, and China. But, of course, the greatest of these is the Sultan of Morocco. At least that's what he says in terms of actual power. It's, it's um, probably not true. But the idea is that he's looking at a world of multiple nations, even multiple Muslim states that exist in, re in relative peace and harmony. Well, it was less than a century ago that some of those states were actually ravaging the Muslim world. It won't be long before it's being ravaged again. But Ibn Battuta gives us the lasting record of yet another high point in the golden age of Islam. And for that, he is definitely worth reading. So we thank you very much for your kind attention. We hope to see you again in future episodes. Thank you so much. Shukran Jazeelan. Wa Maha Salam.